0: Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg, and welcome to the week in politics here on the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report, and what telly doesn't tell you. This week, Rishi Sunak became prime minister. We'll be assessing what his new cabinet tells us about the direction of his government. We'll be discussing his decision to shun the COP twenty-seven climate summit in Egypt and the ongoing stalemate in Northern Ireland's assembly at Stormont. We'll be joined by Byline Times political editor, Adam Bienkov and our investigations editor, Sam Bright. First, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper, which has exclusive content that you can't read anywhere else. We can report without fear or favour, because there's no billionaire or corporation telling us what to say. Our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you, so if you can, please subscribe to the Byline Times. You get more details over at bylinetimes.com. Subscriptions start from as little as £3 a month. So as I say, more details at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to Adam and to Sam. Adam, an article you've written about Suella Braverman returned as Home Secretary in Sunak's first
1: cabinet. That article's gone viral. Tell me about it. Yeah, so obviously we we got a new prime minister this week, and his first big decision was to pick his cabinet, who he wants to be at the top of government. And there are a lot of familiar faces, a lot of people from the trust era, also brought back a lot of former ministers from the Johnson era as well. But there was a number of appointments which raised eyebrows, including Gavin Williamson who has been brought back, and he was famously sacked by Theresa May after being accused of leaking information from government. But more tellingly, perhaps, was the reappointment of Suella Braveman as Home Secretary just six days after she had been asked to resign by Liz Truss for inappropriate use of government information, leaking it essentially to another MP and somebody she believed to be an MP's wife. This was a breach, actually two breaches of the ministerial code, the cabinet secretary decided. And so she had to go. But as we understand it, some kind of agreement was struck up between Braverman and Sunak over the weekend when he was looking to get enough nominations to clinch the leadership contest. The end result is that he agreed to overlook the fact that she just resigned from government and and brought brought him back in. I can understand the sort of raw politics of, of bringing her back into the government, but it doesn't look great particularly when you've just stood on downing street saying that now is the time to bring integrity and, and accountability back into the government after a long period under truss and johnson where those those issues were were called into question and then suddenly bring somebody who has had to resign in disgrace just days before and the
0: circumstances of that resignation have been called into question as well braverman said that she effectively blew the whistle on herself but jake berry Conservative Party chairman has said, no, she didn't, that somebody else blew the whistle on her. So questions about her honesty and integrity have been raised as well, not to mention her views on deporting asylum seekers to Rwanda, which she has said she dreams about.
1: Yes, and it's questions asked about exactly what she did raise and when she raised it, because those claims by Brevin were repeated by Richard Sunak in the House of Commons on Wednesday, And if that isn't true, as it looks like it it is not, then he has potentially misled the House on his first outing as Prime Minister. Downing Street being very reluctant to answer questions about that all this week, essentially refusing to answer questions about what he knew and when. This is turning into what was an embarrassment for Sunak at the start of his into something potentially more serious, and with more more stories coming out. There's another story. Came out last night in the Sun, suggesting that some of the information that she leaked was market-sensitive. Reports of other breaches. I mean, she's she's known within government as Leaky Sue, so it does seem to be a recurring problem here. I think this is potentially turning into something more serious for the Prime Minister, and I just I can't see how it's sustainable. I can understand why he's resistant to to ask her to to step down. You know, to have her suffer a resignation so early in his premiership would look pretty terrible for him. But it, it, I just can't see how he's going to turn this around. I mean, if I was him, I would be trying to persuade Soraya Brennan to resign off her own back. You know, she, all she needs to do is come out and say, look, I'm becoming a distraction for the government. It's time for me to to step down. But you know, as we speak, neither she nor, nor Downing Street seem willing to bend on this. Sam,
0: some commentary suggest that Soella Braverman is in the cabinet in order to appease the right wing of the Conservative Party, particularly the hardline ERG group. But if you look at Rishi Sunak's past, you could argue that he is himself allied very much with the right wing of the party. That's one of the reasons for his ascendancy he was an early adopter of the Leave campaign, and he knows well her views on immigration. She proposes, in line with the Conservative Manifesto of 2019, that net migration should be reduced. This was a point of tension between her and Liz Truss, who saw migration into the UK as a means of generating economic growth. So is Sunak doing this to appease the right, or is he himself of the right?
2: Well I think this just speaks to the modern conservative party. I'd say on the one hand Rishi Sunak is very right-wing, you know some of the things you've outlined there suggest it he voted in favor of Leave which famously Liz Truss didn't despite Liz Truss being seen as more of a Brexity option in the the summer's conservative leadership election and you know Sunak supported an economic agenda that that goes hand in hand with Brexit. He doesn't seem a keen advocate of the sort of interventionism that was proposed by Boris Johnson. He seems more in line with the libertarian philosophy of trust. He's written papers for Tufton Street think tanks in the past, exalting Freeports as the way forward, the post-Brexit innovation that will propel growth in this country. And Freeports essentially propose reducing taxes and certain regulations in particular areas of the country, which is a classic free market view. I'd say that Braveman, though, represents, and the ERG, as you suggest, represents an even more right-wing iteration of the Conservative Party, which does exist, which is really hardline on immigration, is quite aggressive towards Europe, and asylum. You know, I think this is actually a relatively new feature of the Conservative Party, how its hostility towards asylum has been rolled into its anti-immigration tone, which has emerged since 2016. And like you say, that is Braverman's agenda. And Sunak wants to unite the party, and part of that is uh, bringing her in the fold.
0: And we've seen this week reports about uh, an asylum centre in Manston, in Kent, which has been dangerously overcrowded, according to to officials. And of course, it's not easy for the Home Office to have to deal with migrants crossing on boats. There are logistical problems associated with that and also arriving from other areas as well. But it's clear that this has not been, shall we say, wholeheartedly embraced by the UK government, with the result that people who are supposed to stay in a centre only for a a day or two are having to spend weeks there in overcrowded conditions that are Frankly, shocking for a sophisticated modern country.
2: Yeah, this is the this is the thing. I, I think the government's approach towards asylum seekers has been poor and borderline appalling for a number of years. I remember investigating back in 2015, 2016, the massive amounts of money that the government is forced to pay out every year because it unlawfully detains asylum seekers in removal centres. So administratively, in terms of the institution of power, the government in recent years has always behaved badly towards asylum seekers. That, I'd say before the past few years, has been counterbalanced with a generally supportive, sympathetic rhetoric towards asylum seekers and Britain's place in the world in offering them protection. Now, we've seen Nigel Farage campaign quite aggressively about small boat crossings. That has sort of become his hallmark post-Brexit campaign. And that in many ways has been assimilated by the Conservative Party who've tried to you know, prevent Nigel Farage getting any further foothold on the right of politics and eliminating a, a portion of the Tory base in the way that we saw, you know, from 2014 onwards. And so you've seen institutionally, uh, you know, a very hostile attitude towards asylum seekers, now combined with a hostile rhetoric towards asylum seekers as well, which is a pretty miserable position to be in.
0: Yeah, the Chief Inspector of Borders and Immigration, David Neal, said he was left speechless by the wretched conditions at Manston extreme overcrowding and staff, he said, who were not properly trained to do their jobs. Adam, to return to Brexit and what Rishi Sunak believes, one of the consequences of Brexit, and he was in the cabinet which struck the deal, is the Northern Ireland Protocol, which effectively creates a border in the Irish Sea between Britain and Northern Ireland, a border which the Conservatives said would not be there. That's the reason that the DUP are effectively causing the Northern Ireland Assembly in Stormont to be frozen. How is that being perceived in Westminster? Do people care
1: apart from those small number of MPs from Northern Ireland? Well, we do have this bizarre situation in the in United Kingdom generally, where so much of what happens in Northern Ireland essentially doesn't, really get an audience in the rest of the uk but it is incredibly important and a very delicate situation there the assembly has not functioned now for four of the past six years and we have a situation now where one party in northern Ireland is is effectively holding this democratic process to to ransom boycotting it and it's impossible to see how they're going to get through that we now know that the government had Held up the prospect of, the, of holding new elections for the assembly uh, in order to sort of intimidate the D.P. into compliance, and it, it hasn't worked. I mean, actually, the D.P. believe their hardline stance on this could actually help them in the, in that election, despite the the rise of of Sinn Fein. I don't really see see a way through this. It's but it's Brexit has obviously made the bad situation much worse in Northern Ireland. And it's something we should be talking about a lot more in the UK. But it's just, as I say, it's not really getting a hearing in Westminster at the moment. One of the practical consequences
0: of this is that spending which is allocated to the Northern Ireland government can't always be spent. So people who are on hospital waiting lists, people who need help with their energy bills, for example, are finding that. That help isn't always available because it's not simply a case of, oh, well, Stormont isn't doing it. Westminster will do it. Some of these spending powers are
1: devolved and do not default back to Westminster in the meantime. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean these, these are issues that are really affecting people's lives in, in Northern Ireland. And I think there is just a sense that unless events in Northern Ireland are directly affecting the rest of the UK... And obviously we saw that when the peace process has broken down in, in the past. It just doesn't really get a hearing. But, you know, this is a it's a sizable chunk of the United Kingdom. And it's important that this is resolved. I think to, I mean, with some credit to the government, their rhetoric on this issue does appear to have softened a bit, even under trust, as compared to the, the Johnson era. Steve Baker, formerly ERG, still war, war, you know, who just styled himself as the hard man of Brexit. His rhetoric has actually softened a great deal on Northern Ireland as well. So I think the the, the will is certainly there from the UK government to find a solution to, to these difficulties. I'm just not sure that there is actually a solution to be found at the moment under the, the current terms of the Good Friday Agreement and under the current uh, Assembly as it stands.
0: No, well, that's the key question, isn't it? Because if we do have a de facto border in the Irish Sea, the DUP are not going to be satisfied. So the only way we get rid of that de facto border, it would seem from the outside, is to scrap the Northern Ireland Protocol. But that will then have huge ramifications for the UK's relationship with the European Union. Talking about major ramifications, Sam, Rishi Sunak has decided not to attend the COP27 climate summit in Egypt. And many people, the UK government will be represented, it should be pointed out, but many people are saying that this is a sign that Britain's commitment to net zero is not as wholehearted as they would like us to believe.
2: Indeed, and this is perhaps one of the the ways in which we should give credit to Boris Johnson's administration, is For all of its rhetorical bluster that that wasn't matched with substance, and this was potentially one issue as well, he was very committed to the green agenda. There was a great deal of pride, I think, and of institutional investment in the COP26 summit, which was held in, in Glasgow last year. And now there seems to be a large degree of backsliding from this administration, which is peculiar. It does seem to be sending out mixed messages on the climate for whatever reason, perhaps it's party unity purposes, as we discussed earlier. But Sunak indicated earlier in the week that he would reverse the decision to lift the ban on fracking, so essentially to ban fracking again. And now he's come out and not only has he said that he won't be attending the new COP summit in Egypt, but also he's demoted two key environmental representatives from the cabinet. So Alok Sharma, who's the COP president, who, like you say, will be one of those people who'll be representing Britain in Egypt. He doesn't have a cabinet spot anymore. Neither will Graham Stewart, the climate minister. So this isn't just a one-off, which I guess you could understand, you know, lots is happening in the domestic economy. We're all clearly concerned about energy bills, about rising cost of living. And we want the prime minister to be really knuckling down to fix that, which I think does, you know, it has a climate element to it as well. We want we want him to invest in renewables, which will then reduce our bills. But this, like I say, it seems to be a trend. It seems to be a pattern amongst the Sunak administration, even in these early stages, that he's not perhaps taking the climate as seriously as his. I was going to say predecessor <laughs> Boris Johnson was obviously one before his predecessor.
0: And, of course, this is a week when Shell has announced massive profits. And we've had this weird situation, haven't we, whereby the chief executive of Shell, it it seems, has almost been inviting the government to impose a greater windfall tax on the company. Now, it should be said, much is made of the fact that the company has not paid tax on its earnings. That is partly, in fairness, because the company has uh, offset those earnings by reinvesting profits into well, this, green energy
1: no it's not into, not necessarily into green energy this was a, a loophole that was inserted in the windfall tax back in may by the then chancellor rishi sunak now prime minister which was that companies could offset what they were due to pay on the windfall tax if they were renewed in extracting any type of energy so it can be fossil fuels as well it's not restricted just to renewable energy and as a result as you say Shell, uh, despite having near record profits just generated, did not pay anything towards the windfall tax, which is a remarkable situation. Really, all of this comes at the same time as we have a UN report now saying that they're this week saying that there's no now no credible pathway to keep the rising global temperatures below the threshold of one point five centigrade rise, which you know is a pretty bleak assessment. And the the government, as, as Sam says, is really sending out mixed messages on on this. Over the summer, during the, the leadership contest, Suyak was actually quite strong on the environment. Uh, he often raised the example of his two daughters, saying that the one issue that they really cared about was the environment, and he was deeply committed to it. But not only is he not attending the COP27, not only has he demoted his climate change representatives in Cabinet, he's also recommitted himself to banning the generation of new onshore wind farms in the UK. That's a... Sort of long, not long standing, but it was in the in the last Conservative Party manifesto to to ban on new onshore wind generation. But it does seem a bizarre policy for someone who says they're committed to tackling climate change. And actually, these things, onshore wind, just like solar farms, which Liz Truss was also opposed to, are very popular with people. The, the The polling that has been done on this shows that around eighty percent of people are in favour of new onshore wind being built. But it does seem that this there is this conflict within the Conservative Party between. Those like Boris Johnson, who see that we have to be on the right side of history and we have to tackle climate change and get behind this, and the sort of nimbyism and sort of anti-green agenda of many on the, on the right of the party. And it doesn't seem like Rishi Sunak is quite clear what which side of the divide he sits on at the moment. Yeah, we've seen mayors in northern England, people like
0: Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester, Steve Rotherham, On Merseyside, Tracy Brabin in West Yorkshire, trying to seize the initiative in terms of developing green energy. Rishi Sunak himself, and I know this because I've read it in a fantastic article at BylineTimes.com, written by Max Colbert, part of the Byline Intelligence team. He's received £141,000 from individuals and companies with financial ties to the oil and gas sectors. And... You don't have to be that cynical to be aware of that fact and then learn that he's not going to COP27 and say, hmm, how sincere is he really about a green agenda when his funding comes in part from these fossil fuel interests?
2: Exactly. And it, it's a complicated business, this this question of of funding, because lots of these people... Who've donated to Sunak? You know, they have corporate interests in many different fields, not just energy. They may have donated out the, the goodness of the heart or the political ideology, which just happens to be the same as a Tory Prime Minister who isn't doing a lot on the environment or has signaled that he's not going to do a lot in his first week. But the fact is, the waters are made more murky by the fact that the Conservative Party, especially in recent years, allows access two ministers from these donors. So basically, in exchange for large amounts of money donated to the Conservative Party, it allows those donors to have the year of power. So there's what's called the leaders group, where if you donate £50,000 a year to the Conservative Party, in whatever form of that central party, you know, to candidates, etc, then essentially, you're allowed to, to dinner parties with ministers. If you've donated £100,000 or more, and this was in Boris Johnson's era in government, you're allowed to join what's called the Downing Street Advisory Board, where essentially you have exclusive access to Downing Street ministers, advisors, and the Prime Minister himself or herself. So it's not simply that these people have given money and you know there may potentially be some sort of influence. They are allowed through the structures of the Conservative Party to influence those in power. And I think that's why it's particularly concerning.
0: And Adam, as you say, the United Nations Environment Programme saying there is no credible path to limiting climate change to a 1.5 degree increase in temperature.
1: Well, I think there has been a sort of sense among a lot of politicians over recent years uh, that they were willing to put off big decisions on these issues. We think, oh, this is going to be happening. We're going to see these problems in maybe 20, 30 years, 50 years even uh, forward. But look around us now. We're having record temperatures, I believe, this month, floods throughout the summer, wildfires. People are seeing with their own eyes the, the impact of the climate crisis and can see that it's getting worse year on year. And I think there is a real risk for Rishi Sunak and the Conservative Party generally that they're getting on really on the on the wrong side of of this wrong side of history, and we need to act now because this isn't just a, a climate crisis. It's not just about the environment. It's um about all of our our security as well. This is you we know, can if, if there's rampant climate change and sea level rises coming upon us, then we're people are going to be. It's going to become an immigration crisis. The, the small boat. The issue with small boats is going to be absolutely dwarfed if there are you know parts of the world that are suddenly undersea and it's also an economic issue we're looking for growth we're told that the government is dedicated to to finding growth the one of the biggest growth areas in the economy is renewable energy why mm-hmm. are we not investing huge amounts of money in renewable energy rather than actually putting bans on things like onshore wind it's just it's just on all of these areas i think the the government is fundamentally on, on the wrong side of history. And I think Johnson, to his credit, did see that. But I, it does feel like we're really going backwards under trusts and now under Sunak as well. These contradictions um, run all the way
0: through our main political parties. I don't think this is unique to the Conservatives. But you think about what that word means, to conserve. There is arguably no greater duty if you are a conservative than to conserve the planet on which you live there is also arguably no better use for public money than investing in renewable energy which will make us energy independent less prone to be blown by the course of international events like wars in ukraine
2: i couldn't have put it better adrian really and i think To be fair, there is a body of consensus within the Conservative Parliamentary Party for, you know, a more Johnsonite view of the climate. And perhaps this comes back to what we were discussing earlier, that Sunak is being swayed, he's being pulled rightwards due to a compulsion of his, a political compulsion of his, to appease the hard right in his party. Unfortunately, that section, that slither of politics has proven to be effective in recent years, from 2016 onwards, and has been particularly effective in swaying Conservative Party members towards a more radical view of society, climate, economics, and is therefore pulling the body of thought within the Cabinet in that direction as well. Yeah, your point about about conservatism as an idea, as a principle, we could also see that in terms of trust. Her economic views were essentially, you know, slash and burn, Let's everything's awful, it doesn't matter if you burn it to the ground in the process. You know, that's, that's kind of a, a similar strain of thought that runs through multiple different spheres of, of policymaking currently, rather than the sort of stability and fiscal responsibility that the Conservatives were parroting in the, in the Cameron era.
0: Adam, I've seen some polling today that suggests that Sunak's personal rating is slightly better than Keir Starmer's. The polling I've seen suggests that if there was an election today, the Conservatives would still lose by a landslide to Labour. But Sunak himself has a high public approval rating and is more trusted on the economy than Keir Starmer is, probably, perhaps because people have seen him already in the role of chancellor. So you don't need any kind of leap of faith or leap of imagination to see him there. But I suppose it just reminds us of a conversation that we had a few weeks ago, that Labour have got to stand for something more than simply being an alternative to the incompetence of the Conservatives. Because if the Conservatives stop being incompetent under Sunak, then what else have Labour got?
1: Yes. Well, I, I think we have to be slightly wary of, of the sort of early poll- polling. I mean, a lot of this polling has been done sort of in the days when he's been taken over, and I think some of it's quite mixed. I think one poll I, I saw, he was somewhat behind Starmer in approval ratings, but not by much, it's fair to say. But he was slightly ahead, I think one point ahead on who would make the, the best PM. I think Sunak is really benefiting from simply not being List Truss. I mean, Liz is personal approval ratings, I think by some measures, were the lowest of any prime minister since polling began. So simply by not being list Truss, I think he's never to be going to be benefiting from that. I think the problem the Conservative Party has is that although his own approval ratings do seem, well, they are a lot better than list Truss's were, the Conservative Party's ratings don't seem to be catching up with him, certainly not yet. Uh, there's been a slight bump in some of the polls post him becoming prime minister, but they're still 20, 30 points behind Labour, which would still be a wipeout for the Conservative Party. And, I mean, you say, you know, that the risk for Labour is that the Conservatives become stop becoming incompetent. Well, that certainly hasn't been the case in the first few days of Sunak's term, uh, certainly with the Suella-Braveman appointment. But undoubtedly it is the case that he is a much slicker performer, than Truss was, and arguably that's not particularly hard. But, uh, you know, Prime Minister's questions this week, you know, I think he, again, both Truss, and actually Johnson wasn't particularly good in the House of Commons either. I think Sunak just simply died by standing up and reading out some pre-agreed rebuttal lines against Starmer, just for, by virtue of doing that, managed to exceed what were quite low expectations about how, how he would do. But again, the, the substance of his performance at Prime Minister's Questions I don't think was was that great. His attack lines against Starmer seem to be largely borrowed from Johnson, particularly trying to mock Starmer for being from North London, which never particularly worked for Johnson, I didn't think, but certainly don't work for, for Sunak when he himself owns a £6 million Muse mansion in Kensington and another £1 million flat nearby and a manor house in Yorkshire and a 5.5 million pound penthouse apartment in California. You know, I don't think trying to paint Starmer as being out of touch an elite politician really works for him. So he did okay. And I think people are willing to give him a chance, in large part, I think because he's there's a lot of good feeling, goodwill towards him internationally and domestically as well for being the first British Asian prime minister that we've ever had. I think that's understandable. So I think people are willing to give him a shot. It doesn't really change the fundamentals, which is that the economy is really bad. The public believe that that's at least in part to blame by the Conservative Party, including himself when he was Chancellor. I don't think being a bit of a slicker performer and not being list trusted is going to be enough to suddenly start seeing leads in the polls for the Conservative Party. But I think your your basic point that the Labour Party can't just rely on the government and the prime minister being useless as as they did to a certain extent with Truss and and Johnson. I don't think that's going to be enough to to guarantee them a thumping victory in the general election. I think they understand that as well, but I'm not sure they've quite got their attack lines right on, on Sunak yet. They're sort of not sure whether or not to attack him for being rich or whether to attack him for being weak or being the same as and same as John it's a little bit all over the place at the moment I guess that will come with with time they're not quite sure how to do, deal with Sunak at this point
0: no interesting point you make about him being the first South Asian Prime Minister of this country had a really fascinating conversation with Michael Bancoli about that Michael is an academic who has investigated race and representation in uk politics you can hear that conversation on the byline times podcast and read a version of it over at bylinetimes.com and you can read much more from both adam bienkov and sam bright over at bylinetimes.com as well if you're enjoying the byline times podcast if you want to support these two fine journalists then please consider taking out a subscription to the byline times you get a fantastic monthly newspaper but in addition you are helping to support the work of this podcast too. So thanks very much indeed. This has been The Week in Politics. I'm Adrian Goldberg. We'll see you again next week. Cheers now. Bye-bye.